I'm Cassidy Hall. I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Welcome to another episode of Encountering Silence, and today we are pleased and excited to have a guest that I think needs no introduction, but I will give one anyway. Today, Reverend James Martin, who is a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large of America Magazine and author of numerous books, including the New York Times bestseller, Jesus, A Pilgrimage, and The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, is with us. His most recent book, Building a Bridge, is newly out on March 13th in paperback edition with additional material added. Father Martin is a frequent commentator in the national and international media, having appeared on all major outlets and in such diverse outlets as The Colbert Report, Fresh Air, On Being, Fox and Friends, PBS's NewsHour, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Boston Globe, and as well on the History Channel, BBC, and the Vatican Radio. In 2017, Pope Francis appointed Father Martin as a consultant to the Vatican Secretariat for Communications. Welcome to Encountering Silence, Father Martin. Thanks. Great to be with you. So I think what Cassidy, Carl, and I would love to talk about with you today is your relationship with silence. Three of us are fans of your work. We've read a lot of your, of your writing. We've seen you talk. We was hoping that you would help us unpack what silence, what role silence plays in your life as a Jesuit priest and as a writer and as a speaker. If you could speak a little bit about silence in your life. Sure. Well, my first reaction is that there's not enough of it uh, as someone who lives (laughs) in New York and is very busy. But, uh, you know, I've been a Jesuit for 30 years now, and uh, part of being a Jesuit is the desire to be what St. Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, called a contemplative in action. Yes. The person who's living a contemplative life, you know, and being very active, like most of us are, very few of us are monks, and even monks are, you know, lead busy lives. Uh, and part of that is silence and prayer. Um, those two things for me often go together. Uh, so, for example, in my day, I pray uh, in the morning for about a half an hour, and I pray in the evening for about 15 minutes. We can talk about that later. Mass. And then every year, I have an eight-day silent retreat. Uh, and then twice in my life as a Jesuit, I have a 30-day silent retreat. Yeah. So silence is, plays a really big part. And I find that the older I get, the more my prayer becomes simple. I'd read about this when I was a young Jesuit. I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. But now I just like resting in God's presence. And a great deal of that is in silence. And I find that it's like a married couple or any sort of couple or any sort of friends uh, who are so comfortable in a kind of companionable silence that it's okay not to say anything. So that's my favorite way of being with God. Sometimes I imagine myself just with Jesus sitting next to him in silence, and that's enough. Right. 
Yes, exactly. Thank Amen. you. Wonderful. Wonderful. And so as a, as a Jesuit, and I know you do spiritual direction as well, is that, is that correct? I do. I do a lot of spiritual direction, yeah. So do you find that silence is a useful tool in that area, or do, or, or do you find that a lot of people resist that in spiritual direction? Well, it depends who they are. People who are new to spiritual direction, which is basically for people who don't know what it is, it's uh, helping people uh, notice where God is active in their daily life and in their prayer. Um, some people are very comfortable with silence. Most people at the beginning are not, especially young people. One of the difficulties is not silence per se. They're okay being quiet and being with God, but there's a different kind of silence where uh, they don't feel God is with them or God's responding or God's communicating, and that can be hard for people. You know, the movie that uh, Martin Scorsese's movie, Silence, that came out a year or two ago, that's about that kind of silence, the feeling that God is actually being silent with you, which is a little different than the silence we're talking about, which is more quiet. So, yeah, I mean, it depends on the person. A lot of people have to be incorporated into silence. Can I tell you a funny story about a young adult uh, retreat that I did? Yeah, please. 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 Yeah, I uh, at St. Ignatius Loyola Parish, which is in New York, uh, I directed a young adult retreat about, oh, I guess about 20 years ago. And it was about 15, 20 young adults, you know, people in their 20s and 30s. And it was a weekend. And after our Friday night dinner, I said, okay, well, now we're going to enter into silence. And they said, what? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, we're, we're going to, it's a silent weekend retreat. What do you mean? <laughs> and I said, well, we're, we're going to be in silence. Well, 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 what if there's an emergency? I said, if there's an emergency, you can say something, but <laughs> there's not going to be an emergency. So this was after dinner and there was a presentation and then they all went into the kitchen and started talking. And I said, what are you doing? And they said, what do you mean? And I said, it's a silent retreat. They just, they were totally freaked out. So, but by the end of it, by the end of it, this is only a weekend. It wasn't, you know, an eight day retreat or 30 day retreat. By the end of the weekend, they loved it. Yes. Yeah. They loved it because tasting silence is, is a wonderful thing, particularly for a young person who's, and this is pre cell phone, you know, who, who has just sort of led a very kind of hectic and noisy life. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's like tasting a new food Yeah. and it's delicious. Absolutely. Father Jim, would you say that Many people in our in our culture are afraid of silence. Do you think that's a fair thing to say? Yes, I think most people <laughs> in our culture are afraid of silence, and that that sort of goes, you know, across different classes and um, you know ethnic groups and religious groups. I did this book, as you mentioned, uh, building a bridge uh, about LGBT Catholics, and the first half of the book is about dialogue and sort of reaching out to one another between LGBT Catholics and the church hierarchy. The second half of the book is all about prayer. Uh, It's all about uh, using different uh, scripture passages to help people enter into prayer and to look at uh, ways that Jesus reached out to marginalized people. You know, it's an invitation to prayer. And I was really uh, amazed that when the reviews of the book came out, you know, positive and negative, no one talked about the second half. Yeah. No one. And I was shocked. I mean, that to me is the more important part of the book. My joke was that it's like, you know, reviewing war and peace and only doing the peace part. (laughs) (laughs) And and it dawned on me that I think because people are afraid of it, uh, people don't know how to handle it. 
and it's it's very mysterious. And so prayer and silence, I think, are something that really do frighten a lot of people. And I, I think we've uh, sort of uh, developed this culture of noise and distraction so much that when people are alone with their thoughts or alone with silence, it's frightening. Right. Yeah. Because certain things come up. Right. right. And that's scary. Right. You know, I don't want to look at that stuff. And so you have this sort of, uh, you know, our, our phones, a friend of mine uh, the other day called them uh, weapons of mass distraction. Yeah. <laughs> oh, love it. Yeah, love that's, it. That's good. He he might he or she might want to uh, trademark that. That's a good idea. <laughs> That's an accurate assessment, I think. <laughs> well, I think we're going to tweet it. So. <laughs> that's why he, that's why they better trademark it. <laughs> Father Jim, I'm curious about silence as you know in all this context as a meeting place of of the true self. You talk about you know that true self um, that Merton and and Nowen talked about so often in your uh, Becoming Who You Are book. And I'm wondering, you described it recently, I, I listened to actually another podcast you ran, you described uh, the true self as the meeting place of who you are before God and the false self as, of, as kind of this, this cool, this coolness, right? Um, <laughs> so I'm curious if you think people fear, fear it because it's where we see, you know, the, the darkness, the guts of who we are and and or the things that we're, you know, we're learning and we're growing into to that vision of who we are before God. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I think that when you are silent, parts of yourself come up, you know, parts that you might feel regretful about or even guilty about places, you know, and framed in a more positive light, parts of yourself that you feel might need to grow. And that's frightening for people. And, you know, our true self, you know, as you said, is the person we are before God, the person who, whom God created. The false self is the person we sort of present to the world. And this is uh, Merton and a number of other people. And it is, I, I, I think it's the person who's trying to be cool all the time. <laughs> and when we're by ourselves and we're silent, those, those sort of um, exterior wrappings come off and we are left face to face with God. And that's frightening for a lot of people. So a certain measure of silence is important. So that people can encounter their true self uh, before God in silence. And I really think that you need not only silence, but, but solitary time, some mm -hmm. aloneness to do that. And I believe that these uh, weapons of mass distraction, these phones and computers and whatnot, mm -hmm. one of the reasons they're so addictive is because it prevents us from having to look at that part of ourself that we would rather not look at. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, it it even feels like the way you've just described it. It almost feels like these weapons of mass distraction feed the false self. That's the way you're describing it. Mm. Almost. Well, they do, and you know, one of the ways they do is they uh, sort of uh, feed our addiction to always being liked. You know, how many likes yes. have I got on this tweet, on this Facebook page, <laughs> on my Instagram account? How many people have texted me recently? Yeah. And so it feeds this desire to be liked, to be cool, and rather than just to be comfortable who you are. You know, it's it's very interesting. I um, I visit my mother in a retirement community. I think this also, this, this is not just young people. When I walk past the different rooms, I notice that everybody has their TV on. Yep. Right. And, you mm -hmm. know, there's only one person in the, in the apartment or the, the residence. And, you know, obviously people don't, you know, if you're, you're elderly and you're by yourself, it, it gives you a feeling of comfort. But, you know, you have to wonder, is there also a 
uh, sort of discomfort with just quiet and silence. I, I frankly, when I go away and retreat and it's quiet physically, I am so happy. <laughs> I'm just so happy. As a New Yorker, it's just, you know, I mean, people pay millions of dollars you know, to make their apartments quiet. Yeah. Ah, yes, exactly. Wow. So, so speaking of that, um, do you have any special or particular memories of silence, say from e- even childhood, that that was a really special time in your life? That's a really good question. I've never thought about it that way. Um, but, you know, one of the ones that I always go back to is uh, riding my bike to school. And I remember vividly just being by myself on my bike, sort of sailing down the hill with the wind going past my ears and loving it. And I wasn't with anybody and I wasn't doing, quote unquote, anything. And I, looking back on it, I think I was kind of a little bit of a dreamy kid, daydream or whatnot. And so I I really enjoy just looking at the trees and, and nature. And so I do miss that. And I find that I, I connect a lot of silence with nature uh, and with being uh, in the out of doors. And I have a, I've read this a number of times. I, I believe this in my soul. I don't know if it's uh, uh, sort of verifiable, but I think that there is a part of us that uh, relaxes when we're in nature. I think there's a deep part of us that feels connected to that. And I think that when even vistas, I think that when our eyes see something that is sort of natural and kind of a far horizon, there's something in this that just quiets down and it must be part of our evolution. And, and it also, from a, from a religious point of view, um, I think that's the way that God calls to us. Right. Right. You, you remind me of, um, I think it was St. Bernard of Clairvaux who wrote in one of his letters that, uh, you will learn much more from the woods and the forest than you will ever learn from a book. Right. And um, so, so I think that that kind of intuitive knowing has been with us for some time now. If Bernard were alive today, he'd say, and you'd know, you'd learn a hell of a lot more than you would from Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What you know? What makes me happy is I was going to say is that your your short answer there just feeds into a lot of our past episodes. We've talked about science. Violence and nature and our relation, our personal relationships, how we've all, all three of us have found uh, silence and nature together. And, and some of the writing I'm currently doing is about theology and wilderness and and outside. And, and I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. There is more and more evidence scientifically, et cetera, that, you know, our, our bodies, our minds, we love nature. You know, it's good for us, makes us happy. It makes total sense. And, you know, interestingly, when we think about Jesus, you know, who withdrew from the disciples, you know, I mean, Jesus, we we have to imagine, I mean, you know, the area in Galilee, along the Sea of Galilee, where he did most of his ministry, like Bethsaida, Capernaum, Magdala, it's a very tight space. And, you know, he said that the crowds wouldn't let him alone, and he needed quiet time. And there are even sort of speculations about places where he would have withdrew. And it says a number of times he withdrew. You know, right. meaning he needed to spend time in quiet with the Father, and I would imagine of all people, uh, he treasured that. I mean, I imagine him myself as a very dreamy person. Imagine him kind of walking over the fields uh, in Galilee and just thinking. Right. Uh, we also, I think, we also just need to let things rest in us uh, silently. There's so much noise and distraction in our own minds that they need to sort of settle down as well. Right. And I love how you made that connection. I wonder. When you wrote Jesus a Pilgrimage, didn't you also go to 
the Holy Land and spend some time there? I thought I saw America Magazine posting video of that. And did you find any deep silence in the Holy Land when you were there? Is there something that stood out for you? Yes, uh, I did go. My editor-in-chief at the time, Drew Christensen, a Jesuit priest and an expert in Jewish-Christian relations, said, if you're going to write about Jesus— you have to go to the Holy Land. And I resisted it because I thought, well, I first of all, it's too far. It's too expensive. It's dangerous. It's actually none of these things. Right. And also, I didn't want touristy locales to sort of ruin my own idea of the Holy Land. Well, it, it did just the opposite. It really deepened it because, you know, when you stand at the Sea of Galilee, you know, yeah. you it, it changes your relationship with Jesus and who he was. We stayed at a place. It's very funny, actually. We stayed at a place on the Mount of Beatitudes called the Mount of Beatitudes guest house, which is very clever, (laughs) clever, clever name. Yeah. And, uh, I would get up in the morning, believe it or not, I can, and actually we're going back in a couple of weeks, uh, with a group of pilgrims, I would get up in the morning and walk down to the sea of Galilee. And it was utterly quiet except for the birds. Nice. In the morning, nice. and I remember thinking, and I, I often share this with pilgrims. I've been about four or five times with a group of pilgrims. I sometimes just ask them to be quiet, and I say, Jesus heard this. Yeah. 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 You know, he, he literally heard these same kinds of birds, and he, he heard this silence. And you are participating in a physical way with Jesus. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, interestingly, there's a great um, theologian, I'm sure you know, uh, Elizabeth Johnson, mm-hmm. uh, teaches yes. at Fordham, and she said something that sort of blew my mind a few years ago. This may be slightly off topic. Uh, she said that God did not only incarnate himself, or you could say herself, since it's uh, Beth Johnson talking, but that God became matter. That's right. Which I just thought was mm. fascinating. That's right. And so God enters into the universe and so participates in appreciating silence. That's right. Mm. Yes. So God, God enjoyed silence when God was on the earth with us. Right. Right. Lovely. Yeah. I mean, Lovely. it's beautiful. It just, yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful. You're giving me chills as I'm sitting there thinking about yeah. your participating with Christ at the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. Well, it should. And, you know, it's great. I, I'm glad it gives you chills because— we, I think, we're the invitation is for us to have those chills about just participating in, in the world, in the daily lives that everybody lives, because that that's sort of divinized by Jesus. You know, who Amen. participates in that? Amen. You know, you're reminding me of one of my favorite verses, and of course, off the top of my head, I I couldn't tell you where it is, except it's in Ecclesiastes, and it's basically. I think in the New American Bible, it's written that God has put the timeless in the human heart. Nice. But other other translations will say God has put eternity mm. in the human heart. And when I re- the Hebrew word is olam, O L A M. And and when I I reflect on that, and I think of eternity, I think that noise is a function of time. Mm. And so to pop out of time into eternity or into timelessness seems to me to pop into a place of deep, deep silence. So the silence is in our heart and we're called to, to know it. Yes. And I think that uh, there is an attraction when we get down to it for yeah. silence. That yeah. when, when, you know, as I was, uh, I think that's a beautiful quote, actually. Uh, when I was doing that retreat with these young adults, 
once they tasted it and once they experienced it, once they encountered it, they loved it. Yep. And they, they tried to make room for it in their lives. I think the the problem is that our, our society sort of pushes against that. And the idea that you would be uh, silent is somehow weird. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, no. well don't you but think okay. maybe silence, silence is related to, in, in our cultural kind of understanding or cultural prejudices that silence is related to passivity or to vulnerability, maybe weakness, that that to be a powerful person or community is to have a voice. And so so we we have kind of a political bias against silence as well as a psychological or spiritual bias. And I think those might be wrapped in together. I think that's a great insight. Yeah, if you're silent, that means supposedly you have nothing to say. And if you're silent also, that means you're not doing anything. And so therefore you're useless because we're all about being productive. Right. My novice, my novice director used to like to say, um, society wants to make us into human doings instead of human beings. Right, mm. right. Um, or, and also, if you're silent, you're lonely. You're not popular. Yeah. Because why, why would you want to be in your room when you could be out hanging out with all the other cool people. Right. So there are all these things that, that make us feel that silence is sort of less than, and that's why it has to be sort of pushed against. But, uh, you know, you read someone like Thomas Merton, you know, who talks about what he learns in silence and what silence does for him. And, uh, you know, it's obvious that it's, it's, it's needed. And I think, you know, people who don't have a lot of silence in their lives or don't have, let's say, contemplative time or reflective time, you see what happens to them. They become completely scattered and, and not centered and also not particularly self-aware. Oh, very you know, much. I, I won't point to anybody, but... Uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> we can imagine. Yeah, I we can, can imagine. We can imagine. Yeah, I can. Use your imagination. <laughs> so Father Jim, you talked a little bit about, um, about silence being a place where we kind of shed parts of ourselves. You mentioned something to that effect. And I think that's beautiful because obviously when you shed a skin, you're renewed, right? You're evolving. You're becoming more of who you are. And then also in your discussion of, you know, being a contemplative activist, our world just can't merge these words that seem paradoxical, because, but they're not. They're not paradoxical, right? And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, about what it means to you to be a contemplative activist and what it means to you to, um, to, to have that meeting place and for those two things to coexist. Well, you know, I never heard that term contemplative activist, but I am going to start using it. That is a great, that is a great, I never, ever, ever heard that term. But yes, I mean, it is, the idea is a contemplative in action, but, right. you know, the activist does need to have a contemplative bent. And the, the idea really is that balance in Jesuit spirituality for St. Ignatius that we, as Jesuits, and this is sort of, and people who sort of follow the Ignatian way, you know, Ignatius never meant for us to be, you know, in monasteries. That's There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that was not our way. That was not our charism. That was not his charism. At the same time, he did not want us to be just, you know, sort of uh, perpetual motion machines. Right. right. And, you know, really to to do any sort of action that's, that's uh, in any way connected with God and to be an activist that you would hope would be connected with God, you have to stay connected with God. Right. And so therefore that requires silence. And, you know, it really requires, I would say more broadly, self-reflection and prayer. 
and and at the heart of the Jesuit ideal and the Jesuit model, I would say, is something actually that even is deeper than silence, which is relationship. Yes. And so the silence is a the silence is a means to an end for the Jesuit, and I would say for the Christian, because I always people say to me, well, what's the difference between you know, meditation and, and prayer. Now, I, we know that everybody uses those terms. You talk to one person, they mean, when they say prayer, they mean meditation and vice versa. Right, right. Yeah. But yeah. when I say meditation, I mean kind of the, you know, the meditation that we like, uh, Zen meditation, Buddhist meditation, um, sort of quiet time that people have, yoga, um, all very good. Right. Mindfulness, right, all very great things. Versus, I would say, Christian prayer, you know, or religious prayer, um, broadly speaking. And I always tell people that the difference is one uh, is about silence and self-awareness. One is about a relationship. That's yeah. the key. Yeah. So prayer for me has an object. Yes. And the object is God. Mm -hmm. And silence brings me in connection to God. Um, it's not that the other things are, are bad or, or wrong. Uh, and, and frankly, I, I appreciate those in my own life. But in terms of prayer and silence, I, I do it, I participate in it, ultimately to be in a deeper relationship with God. And from which everything else flows that we're talking about, the, the understanding of the true self, activism, everything. Uh, and I meet God in, in silence, and, I, and God speaks to me in silence when I'm lucky. Or like, go this way. <laughs> God always speaks to me in silence. I just need to be sort of paying attention yeah. to hear it. Right. Which, uh, and I'm being a little playful here, but kind of in response to what you just said, what what I would playfully re respond is, prayer has a subject. God is the subject, and we are the object. Yeah. That's a good point. That, mm -hmm. that, 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 you know, that it's God's invitation that mm -hmm. we, by grace, respond to. Yeah. And and silence then becomes the means of our response. So. No, that's great. Yeah, that's the I, the I-thou yeah. relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Which, or, or, someone, or as someone said today, the me-you relationship. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, and it's, and it's great that you mentioned that because, you know, Boober's I-thou is exactly that. It's a mixture of how silence leads into this relationship, you know, like how silence is a doorway in so that you actually, the true self, sees God face to face and actually can respond well to, and, and respond to that relationship call as opposed to a false sort of interaction. I always liked Henry Nouwen's point in, re in his book, Reaching Out, where he said there's the difference, he called there's prayer and then there's illusion. So he's like, you think you're praying, but you're really not. And, and then you get to this space and then you're like, oh, this is what prayer is. <laughs> right, right. And I think that, you know, it, it can be fruitfully compared to a relationship. So yeah, yeah. what, you know, what kind of relationship would you have with someone if all you did was talk? <laughs> Not I mean, really, oh, yeah. not a good one. You never listened. Yeah. And then in terms of prayer, I invite directees, you know, are you always talking at God? Right. I mean, which is, which is important. I mean, it would be, what kind of relationship would it be if you never talked to the person? Right. But are you also listening to God? Are you able to just be with God silently? Like, and I always think of the old married couple that yeah. can just sit on a bench and, or walk, you know, even, even people our age can imagine walking uh, on a beach um, or walking through a beautiful cathedral with a friend, with a very good friend. That's a good example. Yeah. And you're just kind of in awe. You don't have to say, you know, oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. What do you think about that? Oh, that's pretty. I mean, it'd be crazy. Right. But 
so and that's that's the idea of kind of just a companionable silence, you know, with 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 people you're comfortable with. And it takes a while. It takes a while to get there for for some people, but eventually it's it's nice. One of my favorite meditations is I'm at the Sea of Galilee and I'm on a bench with Jesus and I just sit there. Period. Mm. Beautiful. Beautiful. Oh, wow. That's... The other great line is, you know, Aristotle who said, "We become like that which we contemplate." Yes. Mm. Yes. Mm. You know, the other thing is I always, I think that it's important to say that any time spent in God's presence and silence is transformative. Yes. Mm-hmm. Even though we can't see what's happening, something is going on. Yes. It's like even behind your back, sort of. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, God, you know, God's, I, you know, the other day, in fact, yesterday, uh, one of my directees came in and I said, well, imagine if Jesus just came in here and sat with us. That would change you. Right. Just right. would, just quiet. He said nothing. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And and that that's the idea. Just just being in the presence is is enough. So, do you have a particular person in your life who is 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 like a silence hero for you? Somebody that you look to like really this they get this everything we're describing here they get it. Other than Cassidy Hall. <laughs> she is my... Thank ca- you, thank you. She is a silent hero of mine. Before the great Cassidy. I, other than her. Yeah. Well, there are older members of religious orders, men and women, who I look to, uh, my spiritual directors, and really these great retreat masters that I've had that just seem so comfortable in their own skin and have no trouble with just being quiet. And I I think I've noticed, this is my little life lesson, the most healthy and open people who I know in general, not all the time, are people who are uh, spiritual directors. Mm. Mm. And I think it's because they're so uh, attuned and aware of the working of the spirit, but also they are comfortable with silence and not running around. And I just love being... I just love being next to them. So I look to people like that in my own life. And I can think of a few people that I've known who have been my spiritual directors who are just uh, silent and also completely centered and grounded. Yeah. And nothing nothing bothers them. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew a guy in the uh, novitiate. His name was Joe McCormick. And he was probably the free one of the freest persons I've ever met. And... He, very quick story, he was probably in his mid-70s, and he was supposed to go to Jamaica to visit some Jesuits there. And he came back, and he told me this long story about how he was at Logan Airport in Boston, and there was a flight mix-up. So this is 1988, 1989, before cell phones and the Internet. Flight mix-up and problems with the subway, and he was just, it was just a mess, and he couldn't even go. And he came back, and he laughed about it. (coughs) And I said, well how were you able to do that? And he said, well, what could I do? You know, who, ca- who cares? <laughs> just, he just thought it was the funniest thing. And that's a person who's very free. It wasn't like, how dare they do this to me, or I have to be there. or And, you know, he had things to do. And I thought, here's a guy who was just free. And his, and his most common expression was when we would say, you 75, when we were these, you know, like 27-year-old novices, Joe, you want to go out to see this new movie? Why not? (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm sure you're laughing because you know people like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why not? Yeah. Or who cares? You know, some of these great, I think some of the greatest spiritual insights are those throwaway lines. Why not? Who cares? So what? <laughs> I, I completely appreciate your position, too, because uh, some of my spiritual directors as well, uh, a lot of them Jesuits, uh, the same thing. Now that you've mentioned, it's calling up the images of the, in the faces of these men who uh, uh, have been like profoundly important for me. It's exactly what you've described here. And they're just free. Yeah. They're yeah. free. That, and that's the Jesuit ideal, by the way, yeah. uh, that freedom and detachment. And that comes with a deep knowledge of yourself. And, and other people, mm-hmm. and, all, and, and also how God is at work through yourself and other people. And so who cares, you know, as, as Joe said. I'll never forget that. I would have been boiling with frustration. Yeah. Coming back, you know, not service, missing your flight and then being on the subway or the T in Boston and then, you know, having to come back. And he just thought it was the funniest thing. <laughs> so what? Who cares? Yeah. Wow. Um, Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. Father Jim, I'm curious, one of my interests, in fact, all three of us are very, very interested in interfaith dialogue, inter-spirituality, inter-religious encounter. And it seems to me that, that there really have been a number of Jesuits who have been at the forefront of, of inter-religious dialogue and interfaith encounter. I'm thinking of... Um, William Johnston in Tokyo and Thomas Hand, and uh, I may be mispronouncing his name, but Enomaya LaSalle, who lived in Japan for a number of years. It's just a, it's just a number of figures like that. Robert Kennedy in New Jersey. Yeah, who's yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my question is, have the, the treasures of the East, of, of Buddhism or Vedanta or, or Taoism or any of those traditions, has that been part of your journey into silence? And if so, could you just tell us a little bit about that? It has been. Another person I would uh, add is Frank Clooney. Yes, absolutely. uh, Yeah, teaches at Harvard. You know, it has been to a degree, and I say to a degree, not because I'm in any way opposed to those things, but because I I still feel I'm learning about the Christian part. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I did not enter the Jesuits with a whole lot of Christian background. So, you know, if you put a gun to my head, which I hope you would not have at age 27, and said, who is Teresa of Avila? I would say, I have no idea. Right. So, or John of the Cross. So, so I'm still kind of coming up to speed with that. I think that the most helpful tools that I've gotten have been through uh, two things. One, when I was in my philosophy studies as a Jesuit, I took an entire course on Eastern philosophies. Yeah. And I learned about Buddhism and Taoism and fascinating. So yeah. I just, I loved it. Second, I think would be just through individuals, you know, who have uh, opened up that, that part of the world to me. So for example, Thomas Merton, uh, Bede Griffiths, 
who wrote a lot about Indian spirituality. And I would say most especially Tony DeMello, yes. uh, mm. who was a Jesuit who talked a lot about the wisdom of, of the East and, you know, got in trouble for it. And I have a friend, for example, Bobby Carley, who's a young Jesuit who does uh, Ignatian yoga. Oh. Um, mm. So, I, you know, I always think it's, it's very important to ground yourself. So for me, Jesus Christ is the center of my life, but that does not mean that I cannot learn from, particularly I would say the techniques um, and the insights of other religions, which which really helped me. You know, centering prayer, I think, is which is very important to me, gets in a lot of trouble because it's supposedly uh, suspiciously close to uh, Buddhism, you know, as if we couldn't learn anything from Buddhism and from their techniques and their practices. I, I often introduce people to centering prayer, and instead of using the word mantra, I say prayer word, and they say, oh, that's fine. Right, 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 <laughs> yeah. right. right. This, I think this goes a little bit back to that, that whole fear issue, right? And being afraid, like we, we were talking about being afraid of the silence and, and also, you know, many Christians and Catholics are afraid of, of other traditions and other things that can kind of enhance, enhance um, our prayer lives. And, you know, not only are people afraid of silence, but many Catholics and Christians also seem to be afraid of, you know, going back to, to your book, LGBTQ people, many people are afraid of, of them of, I, I would say, us, of me. So do you think there's a similarity between these types of fears at all? Well, I do. And, you know, you're helping me realize something. Uh, they're very connected, and I'm just realizing it sitting here. One of the reasons they are afraid of both things is because they have been taught to be afraid of both things. Right. Mm. right. They have been yeah. taught to be afraid, certainly before the Second Vatican Council, of other religions. That's right. Right? Uh, mm -hmm. error, mm -hmm. error has no rights. That That's was right. before Vatican II. Okay. And they have certainly been taught to be afraid of LGBT people, and they are still being taught to be afraid of LGBT people as if they are the only and worst sinners in the church, when we are in fact all pretty bad sinners. Right. So it's, it's, it's the fear of the other. Right. So the other mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. terms of religion, the other in terms of sexual orientation or, uh, you know, even even LGBT people are, are sometimes treated as or, or described as almost subhuman. And that that's at a very early age. And I think the invitation is to see how Jesus reaches out to the other. And and even, you know, I say this in the Building a Bridge book, you know, when he meets a Roman centurion who, by the way, is a pagan. Right. Uh, in, in Capernaum, uh, the man who comes up and says, my servant is sick and Jesus heals the servant. Uh, he listens to him. Yes. He listens, he encounters him, he respects him. He does a favor for him by healing the servant. And then guess what? He praises that guy's faith as greater than all in Israel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing. And that yeah. you can't get more other than that. I mean, Jesus, I mean, for Jesus, there is no other. That's right. There's no, there's no mm -hmm. us in them. Yeah. And 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 I think, you know, while 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 maintaining our fidelity to at least for me, my you know, my my Christian religion, you know, my Catholicism, that does not mean that I can't encounter people in other religions and learn from them and encounter them. I think Pope Francis is doing a great job. I think John Paul did a great job with that. You know, what does it mean to encounter and listen and learn? That's right. Because, because that's what Jesus did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and it sounds like you're, you're making the connections with the answers you've already given us uh, from the other questions, because uh, you mentioned Francis Clooney. I, I studied with him at Boston College. I did comparative theology in grad school. And so, so yeah, this idea of nostra aetate, that you know, Christ is involved in every tradition of the world. That and this silence in the heart of all things, Christ. If if Christ becomes matter, if Christ incarnates, 
then there is no other. Christ is present to all things, right? I mean, that's that's how. And now, again, though, like you said, we're grounded. I'm I'm Catholic, and I traditional. I'm like you. I I'm very much want to reach out to my brothers and sisters in other traditions. Uh, I'd like to learn from them, and I think I can. But I am grounded in Christ. That's my tradition, and then I go forth from that, like like Nostra Aetate suggests. And John Paul II did this with uh, you know at Assisi when he's calling all those people to pray with him at Assisi. He got in some people angry when he did that, but, you know, uh, I, so I, I agree. I just want to say I, I hear uh, like you summing up right there in your answer, like probably all the questions we've asked you in one shot right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And I think that if you read Nostra Aetate at some parish today, people would say, how could you say that? That's terrible. That's that's heresy. That's right. You know, I'm sorry. That's Catholic teaching. Right. It's the official you know, teaching uh, of the church. Right. And and we still have not accepted it, I think. We still have really not—it's not been received yet. And I think one reason is because of this fear of the other. Yeah. Yeah. So we got to really—you know, we really have to take Jesus's message seriously. That it, and, and, you know, Richard Rohr, one of my great heroes, um, often says—which blew my mind when I first heard it. Jesus never says, worship me. Jesus right. says, follow me. Exactly. And that sort of blew my mind because what do we do mostly? We mostly worship him, which is fine. I obviously worship Jesus. But can we follow him in the way that he approached people who were other? That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I also appreciate what you said about it's not just, you know, this fear of the other based on what we're told or based on, you know, past teachings. We fear the other in that we fear the unknown. Right. We fear the people we don't know, the types of people, the people with different faiths, the people with different um, sexualities or what have you. But I think just that fear of the other, it just goes really deep. And it's such an important and necessary conversation for our world today to to dive into other people's lives. And it's amazing how it can just increase one's compassion and depth of of humility for humanity. That's exactly right. And, you know, I'm getting all sorts of insights talking to you guys. This is great. <laughs> it's it's the fear of the other because, as you say, because they're different and it would it would ask us to kind of go out of ourselves. But also it would it might ask us to learn yeah. and to maybe, God forbid, change, yeah. <laughs> which is just, you know, what a yeah. nightmare that would be. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> so I think it's it's hard for people to meet someone who is seen as other, who has been traditionally seen as other. Because it's, it is, you know, as you say, rightly, it's unknown and it's sort of like a, a weird or frightening or exotic or different. I'm uncomfortable. But also, I might actually have to learn from this person. Yeah. I might actually have to listen to what this person has to say. And that might sort of threaten me a little bit. And look at, you know, look at Jesus meeting the woman at the well for example, in the Gospel of John, who's very different. You know, uh, one commentator said he's not supposed to be talking to her for two reasons. One, she's a woman. Two, she's from Samaria. Exactly. He has this, he has this long, long, long for the Gospels conversation. He's listening to her. And, uh, you know, what is she going to tell him? Uh, same with the Roman centurion. Here's a really interesting uh, part of the Roman centurion story. Jesus, it is said in the Gospels, is amazed by the man's faith. Right. Yeah. There's Jesus being challenged. I mean, it doesn't. Jesus doesn't say. I always joke with crowds. Jesus doesn't say, 
Oh yeah, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> right? It says Jesus is astonished by the man's faith, and so he is being he is he is encountering something that's different, and he is presumably you know learning something. You know, even that's a whole sort of theological question about fully human, fully divine. But he's amazed, right? And can we can we also be amazed, right? Oh yeah. Now I'm the one getting a lot of insights, but you remind me of the Syrophoenician woman mm. and how that encounter, you know, where they kind of Jesus and the woman kind of spar, mm-hmm. you know, he says something like, you know, I'm here for the children of Israel, not, you know, you, you, you don't give the food for the children to the dogs. And she says, Hey, if the scrap falls off the table, the dog gets fed. <sighs> and Jesus again remarks, never have I seen this faith. So it's like a teachable mm-hmm. moment for Jesus. Yeah, you know, I've gotten into trouble by tweeting this out and talking about this, but uh, I believe that if there's the theological conundrum of if he's fully human, he can't know something until he's taught it. If he's fully divine, he knows everything. And in that passage, it's very mysterious, but uh, at least as it's written, as the Gospel of Mark presents it, he is he's either challenging her or he's doing it for the purpose of, of sort of showing the disciples, or he's learning something. And uh, a number of scholars say he was a first century Jew who probably thought that his mission only extended to the Jewish people. And so this woman in her beautiful faith sort of asked him to expand what he was originally thinking. And I, I think it's a very mysterious and I would say one of the most beautiful and complex stories because it really you, you throw that in front of a crowd and they they have very, very strong reactions that Jesus would learn is right. shocking to people because I don't think it sort of denies his divinity at all, you know, at all. You can think he's fully human and fully divine and believe that. But I think one of the problems is that it means that we would learn too. Yeah. Well, and, you know, if you look at it in terms of kind of contemporary ethical theory, if you think of Kohlberg or Carol Gilligan, you know, this idea of transitioning from a tribal consciousness to a global consciousness. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's caught there, that Jesus makes that transition in his engagement with the Syrophoenician woman, who once again is a pagan woman. And um, so, but but I love your insight, Father Jim, that that it also calls us to be able to grow. And back to your comment about amazement, what that makes me think of is the concept of wonder, Mm. which I think again brings us right back into contemplation and into Mm. silence, that, that really the heart of the contemplative stance is to be in that place where we allow the talking, you know, the monkey mind, as it's called, to just kind of quiet down a little and move into that place of wonder. Yeah, yeah wonder, I think, wonder, joy, gratitude, thankfulness, uh, awe. I think they're all, I, I often think of it being like a childlike mind, too. Right. Mm. Wanting yes. to see something. Uh, you know, I have a nephew who is 12, who I love. His name is Matthew. And he lives near this pond and he loves to go and just be at the pond. And yes. obviously he's 12, so he likes to throw rocks and set things on fire. Of course. Uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but there's also a, there's also a desire to just look and see and, and be curious. And I think that's, that is part of the contemplative, the contemplative mind. You know, uh, one of the great insights that I've gotten, thanks to Pope Francis, his uh, document, uh, his uh, encyclical Laudato Si, which is about the environment, had this incredible passage, which just blew my mind, that talked about 
uh, Jesus in creation. And I thought, well, all right, fine. You know, Jesus, he uses the wheat and weeds and birds, you know, for his parables. But he says that Jesus also enjoyed creation. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that's so beautiful. And that the title of that passage, uh, very short, is The Gaze of Jesus, G-A-Z-E. Yeah. Uh, it's quite beautiful. Uh, and it's it's not only that he used it for his parables and that he was in it and then he was incarnated and then he was part of it, but that he himself enjoyed looking at the birds. Of course he did. You right. know, he was a human being. By the way, as an aside, when I was on pilgrimage, I was talking about this in front of a group. And in the group were these two gay men, a couple who was on our pilgrimage. And I looked out and I said, you know, and this passage is called the gaze of Jesus. <laughs> and the whole crowd looked up to me and I said, G-A-Z-E. And this, this, uh, this couple came up to me afterwards and said, you were talking about us, weren't you? <laughs> so now when they write to me, they sign it, the gaze of Jesus. Um, one of our contemplative heroes is a contemporary Anglican writer named Maggie Ross. And she talks about contemplation in terms of beholding, which is a, a word that comes out of Julian of Norwich. And this, or, and I think maybe the cloud of unknowing as well, but right. this idea that, that the contemplative, the practice of silence is a practice of beholding. And then you mentioned, you know, Richard Rohr, who talks about learning to see as the mystic sea. Right. And I think that's that gaze right, right. there. Right. So, so silence also has kind of a visual component. This, I think that's true. And I, I always liked, I think beholding, that's a beautiful word too. I think using words that are a little antiquated help us. Yes. Because it sort of pulls us back. Uh, I think re for me, reflecting has always been a really important word. Oh. That was a word that was used when I was a young Jesuit. You know, can you reflect on this, reflect on that? And I think when you think of a pond, there was a pond near our uh, novitiate in Boston in uh, Jamaica Plain. And it would reflect the trees, the sky. And there's something that I even find hard to articulate that you, as someone who re is reflecting on God, you're in a sense maybe reflecting God to other people, or you're just sort of being still and letting that image uh, imprint itself on you as it would imprint itself on a still pond of water. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And and to connect it, too, with this sense of, you know, back to this idea of other, that if you're going to reflect, if you're going to behold, you see everything, warts and all, right? And so I think the connect, the scare, being scared of the other reminds us of the scary parts within ourselves. Because if I see somebody out there doing something and I go, ooh, I don't like that, a lot of times what I don't like is, is in my heart. Uh, and, yep. and, and so they're reminding me of my own kind of whatever. So if I sit there with it, like, I don't want to see my brokenness or I don't want Jesus to see it. I don't want to see it, you know. And yet Jesus is amazed and would, would look lovingly on that, you know, would, you know if you allow it. <laughs> but we're afraid to allow it, you know. Yeah, and therapists say, at least my therapist says yeah. it all the time, that, uh, you know, what you get angry about in other people is really in yourself because you can't stand it. Right. And, you know, I often wonder if the woman caught in adultery, mm. you know, when Jesus, they're also angry at her. When Jesus says, let you who is without sin cast the first stone, he's putting his finger on that as well. Right. That yeah. you're, you're getting angry at this woman for Maybe they were adulterers in the crowd. Who knows? But right. you're getting angry at this person for being sinful. And it's it's your own sinfulness that you're really yes. needing to look at. I mean, that what a shocking 
story that is. Yeah. Uh, even even today, some of some of the parables and some of Jesus' stories in the Gospels, I think we we've gotten so used to that we we sort of we've tamed them. But that is a shocking story. Yes, yeah. very yeah. much, very very much. Father Jim, I know we're we're almost out of time, but but I have one more question for you, and it it's getting maybe a little away from silence, but it's. It's back to the book, Building a Bridge. And, and I'm just wondering if you could maybe speak to us very briefly where you see hope in terms of the church and the gay and lesbian community and, and this bridge, the eponymous bridge that you're inviting us to build. Where do you see the hope? I'd say in a couple places. First, I see hope mainly and mostly in the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is present and animating people and changing things and encouraging people to, to speak out and, uh, and that the Spirit is always going to be surprising us. Maybe, this, maybe people aren't responding to the Spirit as much as we would like, but I'm always hopeful about that. But then there are two other places. The first thing is in two words, and those two words are Pope and Francis. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, his words, uh, who am I to judge, have really changed things for LGBT people. Now, most people say, oh, what has that changed anything? Well, talk to an LGBT person and see what they say, right? Most, more of them feel comfortable. Uh, and it's not just that. He's talked about, he's used the word gay. He's talked about gay friends that he's had. He said, I, you know, you never say to a homosexual person, you know, go away from me. You know, really, in a way that no other pope ever in history has, okay? He's also appointed people who are much more LGBT friendly, Right. I mean, the bishops and cardinals and archbishops he has been appointing in general have been much more friendly. So you have someone like Cardinal Tobin in Newark who had a welcome mass for LGBT people, which is unheard of. Right. The third thing that's happening is this. And this really does give me uh, hope as well. As more and more people come out and are public about their identity and their sexuality and even, you know, including in the Catholic Church, more and more families are affected. As more and more families are affected, mothers and fathers and grandparents, especially brothers and sisters, they bring their desires and their hopes into their churches, their parishes, such that they won't simply won't stand for certain things, right? Certain language and, and, and treatment. As parishes are affected and, and they're, they're encouraged to encounter and listen, these families and these LGBT people, they're changed. Priests are changed. Bishops are changed. And so... The irony is, and I think one of the reasons there's been such pushback on the book is that this is just happening. Mm. You know, you can't let the, you can't put the cat back in the bag. Right. You, more and more people are coming out. And so I, I think that, that that sort of sociological phenomenon is happening. So you have kind of a, I would say, a spiritual phenomenon or a pneumatological phenomenon, if we want to be theological, an ecclesiological phenomenon, and maybe a sociological phenomenon. Yeah. Right. That is that's just giving me tremendous hope. And so when I when I sort of get pushed back and critique, I just say, well, it's happening. And, you know, you might as well try to put a stone uh, across the, the tomb again. Right. I mean, he's and, out. Uh, he's out, you know. So along with this hope, Father Jim, can you maybe give us a little glimpse into what people can expect in the new and revised and expanded edition? Yeah, thanks for asking. So the first book, which was quite short, was you know, dialogue, you know, between LGBT people in the church and prayer. This uh, new and revised edition, first of all, has a long introduction responding to some of the most common questions and critiques about the book. It looks at some of the pushback and why there's so much hatred. 
But there are basically more stories in the book uh, throughout. Um, the first one was very, I don't want to say abstract, but very formal. You know, here, here are my ideas for this. And in the past couple of months, I knew within a few weeks I wanted to do a revised version because in the past few months, I've spoken to so many LGBT people in a way that I wasn't able to before because there are just so many of them coming to me at these talks and telling me these stories, parables almost, that I wanted to share with people and to say, look, here's a story. You know, here's a story, for example, of a grandfather who came up to me and said that he knew that his grandson was gay. And when the grandson sat down to tell him, he sort of suspected. And he said, quote, whatever you're about to say, I love you. Mm. Uh, and so I say, what can we learn about acceptance from this grandfather? So there's more of that. There's more statistics and facts about LGBT people and bullying and violence and suicide that we need to pay attention to that reminds us that it's a pro-life issue. Uh, and there are finally more scriptural meditations. Uh, I was very happy to put in, for example, the woman at the well and invite people to think about her. So it's a much fuller book. And, you know, it's the book that I... I wish that I had written earlier, but I couldn't have written it earlier because I didn't have this volume and sort of celebration of all these LGBT people coming to me and sharing and their questions, too, you know, and their critiques, as well as church officials saying, you know, we didn't understand this. This wasn't clear. So I'm really happy about it because it's you don't get a you normally don't get a second chance in life. But, you know, as an author, you do, especially when the paperback version comes out. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Uh, it, it sounds wonderful to hear that it's the book basically grows out of a dialogue from an audience. So that, that makes it much more profound and, and powerful, I think. Yeah, I really had to listen. And, you know, at one point I had, a, I had an encounter with a group of LGBT people at a church uh, next door to where I live. And they were very nice, but very challenging about you didn't leave enough room for protest and for, uh, you know, people to really speak out in a, in a kind of, you know, loud way. And I said, well, I'm much more about respectful dialogue with the bishops. And they, one theologian who was terrific pushed back and said, well, we don't have those avenues. You know, you're a priest. You can talk to bishops. And sometimes for us who feel shut out and who try to talk to bishops, we feel that the only avenue is to really sort of speak out in protest. And he said to me, and this one word just unlocked everything. He said, that's our charism. Mm. Your charism is to, you know, approach it as a Jesuit. Our charism as lay people in this particular arena who have no avenues feel emboldened to speak out. And I put that whole thing in the book. I asked him to write it up, and I said, here's another way of looking at it. And hmm. just to be open to that, and I found very interestingly, as another aside, the ability of one word to just open something up. When, when he said charism, I thought, yes. Yep. Yeah kind of stops the mind. There's your silence. It stops the mind and you see, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you have to encounter the person and listen, you know, like Jesus does. I was amazed. So Father Jim, as we wrap up here, I'm wondering if you could kind of take us back into the silence and maybe point to a favorite poem or some favorite books that, that really um, have shown silence to you in a different way. Sure. Recently, I came across two that I just loved. Um, one is called Fragments of Your Ancient Name by Joyce Rupp, who is a uh, sister. And it's, uh, I think, 365 sort of meditations on God's name in yes. different uh, traditions. It's really just, unusual, you know, like the healer, uh, the provoker. It's just beautiful. And another is this book called Incarnation by a Franciscan poet named Irene Zimmerman. She's a sister. And can I read one of the poems to you? Oh, please. 
It is stunning. It's stunning. She basically kind of invites us into the scripture passage, and it's called The Healing of the Paralytic. So here it is. There were some who insisted that Jacob's paralysis was punishment for his secret sins, and he wasn't worth our pity. But when we heard about the leper who showed up healed by Jesus, we four got together. There ought to be a way, we said, to help Jacob too. When we got to Jesus's place, the crowd wouldn't let us through, what with the mat and all. Why not try the roof, someone said, laughing. We looked at each other. We'd come too far for nothing. Let's try it, we said. We edged around the house and hoisted up the litter and Jacob and poked a hole in the thatch. The oily voices of Jerusalem scribes heckling Jesus seeped up to us. Let's give the master a break, we said, and tore the roof apart. We lowered the mat and swung ourselves down in a rain of dust and straw. The scribes sputtered and coughed into gold-embroidered sleeves and retreated to the corners. But Jesus smiled us a welcome, brushed straw from his shoulders, and turned his eyes toward Jacob. The room watched in silence as the master leaned down to touch him. Your sins are forgiven, he said. As rumbling rose from the shadows, Jesus' command rang clear. Stand up, take your bed, and go home. Jacob sprang up like a wheat stalk and carried his mat out the door. We stayed to listen to Jesus as he shone in a shaft of light, the dust we had raised forming an aura around him. That is beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. The imagery is unbelievable. She is not particularly well known, uh, Irene Zimmerman, nor is this book, but not for lack of my trying, because <laughs> I am just amazed by it. It is, And you know what's strange as we're talking? Isn't that a very silent kind of poem? Yes. Yes. Completely. Yes, absolutely. Completely. Well, and it mentions silence. It. Yeah. It's, you know, I remember, I don't know if it's Emily Dickinson who said that a poem should make you feel like the top of your head has been taken off. <laughs> and I, I came upon this, uh, this book of uh, poetry. There's another one I think called woman unbent. This one's incarnation. And someone gave it to me, a uh, sister on retreat. And I, I couldn't believe it. I said, where's this woman been all my life? Exactly. And so it's just quiet and beautiful and stunning and silent. And you're just, as you say, you're just sort of, you're just sort of, uh, reduced to sort of just, beholding it. Mm. So that, that book and then also Joyce Rupp's book have really helped me a lot in my prayer. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And thanks for, uh, I got so many insights listening to you guys. So just thank, thank you one and all, you know, thank you, mm. Kevin. Thank you, Cassidy. Thank you, Carl, for inviting me. And it's just, it was, it's been a delight. Oh, thank you. That's, it's our, our pleasure. God bless you. God bless you too. Such an honor to have you, Father Jim. Thank, yes, you. thank you. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, www.encounteringsilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter, 
at Silence Podcast or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com forward slash Encountering Silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being.